Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. This is Death, Sex and Money. I'm Anna Sale, and welcome to day two of the first ever Audio We Love Festival. All this week, we're bringing you some of our favorite recent podcast pieces from across the audio world. Yesterday, we shared the first episode of a brand new series from the BBC World Service called Goodbye to All This. It's a beautiful show about family, love, and loss. If you haven't heard it yet, make sure you go back and listen. And don't forget that this Friday, October 16th, we are closing out our festival with a very special live event featuring the host of the Back Issue podcast, Josh Gwynn and Tracy Clayton. Join us on Zoom at 7 p.m. Eastern time. You can get all the details at thegreenspace.org, and that's green with an E. Today, we're bringing you an episode from the podcast called Constellation Prize from The Believer magazine. The host and creator of this show is Bianca Gaver, and this episode is called Crossing Guard. If you have been craving some intimate human connection, you're about to get some. Listen, and afterward, I'll talk more with Bianca. From The Believer magazine, welcome to Constellation Prize. Last summer, the main thing that felt good to me was sitting in cafes and reading novels. The book that struck the deepest was a work of existentialism called Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. It was written 80 years ago, but to me, it perfectly described my experience of being a freelancer in Brooklyn, in 2019. Like this line, for example. Wednesday, I must not be afraid. Or this one. Three o'clock, an odd moment in the afternoon. Today, it is intolerable. The main character is named Antoine, and this book is his diary. He's so lonely that things are starting to get weird. If you look at yourself too long in the mirror, you'll see a monkey. What I see is well below the monkey, on the fringe of the vegetable world. Am I myself not a wave of icy air? That summer of reading Sartre, I was confronting a new feeling in my life. A feeling of loneliness. It was like there was something between me and the people I was speaking to. Like I existed in another realm. There's no socially acceptable way to tell my friends I'm lonely. No bureau of loneliness I could report my feelings to. So instead, I got on the internet, and I started reading articles. I read that loneliness is a public health epidemic with real physical side effects. As a predictor of early death, it's on par with obesity or smoking. Almost a third of Americans live alone, and half say that they feel lonely. And those numbers are rising. The younger people are, the lonelier they say they feel. 
Then someone told me about a quote Pope John Paul II had said. You feel alone? Try to find someone who is lonelier than you. I had never paid attention to anything a pope had said, but I took this idea to heart. I thought, maybe I could find a stranger in New York City who also feels lonely, and then ask to document their life for many months. Through doing this, we would get to know each other, and we would both become less lonely. So I started walking around, recording myself thinking about this idea. It would be like an adventure, I thought, an adventure in the ordinary world. I don't know who it's going to be or when I'm going to find them. I'm just going to try to, like, open myself up to New York City. But where was I going to find a stranger who was willing to be my subject? I knew there were lonely people all around me in New York City. I just wondered, where could I find them? I realize that churches are places where strangers gather, where people often come alone. I figured all I had to do was find someone sitting by themselves and try to sense if they were also lonely. So I started going to a bunch of religious gatherings in New York, looking for my stranger. I went to Quaker meetings on Sundays, a spiritual reading group on Mondays, and daily mass during the week. I didn't tell my parents I was doing this because they hate religion. And for this exact reason, I found it very alluring. At church, I sat down in a pew, knocked my water bottle over. The church services were often boring, but it was the coffee hour afterward that I relished. A group of us would gather in the corner of a huge basement, It looked like someone had booked a venue too big for the size of a party. We huddled around coffee cake, Lipton tea, and stale bagels. I talked to an old man wearing a wig. I met a nine-year-old who had written a poem and dated it 2019 AD. I interviewed a businessman on Wall Street. How small the earth is compared to Jupiter and how small... A former nun. We'd file shareholder resolutions. There's a... A Quaker. Even the beans were in color coordination. But none of them felt right. The process was like dating. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, but I knew I hadn't found it. Weeks went by. And then one day, at a Catholic reading group, a middle-aged woman caught my eye. I couldn't tell her age. It could have been anywhere between 40 and 60. I saw her bending down to play with the kids, even getting on the floor with them. I had always admired people who could play with other people's kids. I went up to talk to her, and she told me about making necklaces, how the beads came alive to her. And then she told me that she's a school crossing guard. The people on the street who wait to see us, but we never really stopped to see them. I told her I was a radio producer, that I wanted to interview her about her life. She seemed unsurprised. She immediately said yes. Maybe she too was ready for adventure. I rode my bike to her apartment in downtown Brooklyn on a Saturday afternoon. It was a crisp, bright fall day. I took the elevator up to the sixth floor of her apartment building and stood for a second in the hallway. Test, test. I felt nervous and awkward. I don't like rolling tape when I first arrive, but I did it anyway. Hello. Hello. (laughs) You're waiting expectantly. Yes. Cuckoo. Are you recording already? Mm -hmm. (gasps) It's a technique. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I thought you were just like dressed up and ready to go. Well, that too. But I don't have to. Oh, cool. No, that's fine. That's totally fine. I took off my shoes started looking around the living room. And I'm just going to light a candle, um, and I'm going to pray, and I would invite you to say anything you want to. Okay. Yeah. So you're going to pray out loud? Yep. Yep. Awesome. Yes. Okay. 
Dear God, sorry I forgot about you. And thank you for the tingles that I received in my body this morning. That was nice. And I just want to say thank you for sending Bianca to me. Thank you for helping me tell the truth. Um, would you like to wish for anything or? Yeah, um, I'm grateful that Sophia is trusting me with her story and willing to um, be vulnerable with me. And I hope that in exchange, I can um, be a trustworthy keeper of her words, which are trapped somewhere in this electronic file, but have the potential to help someone else who might be lonely. And I hope that one day they reach um, that person in their time of need. This idea that God had sent me to speak to her, I didn't really believe it. But on my way over, I had been feeling some doubt about interviewing random, lonely people. So this confidence from God was kind of nice to hear. So I said, fine, I'm just going to listen to it. Sophia lived in a one-bedroom apartment. It looked pretty clean. But then she told me. I spent um, about three hours cleaning up before you came over. Wow. Yeah, total honesty. So refreshing. We were sitting on the couch in her living room, and the interview had unofficially begun. Like I, one of the reasons I love podcasts and radio is because I can do it while I'm cleaning up. Because yeah. I realize that when you live alone, having a voice makes you feel like you're with other people. Yeah. And... Um, It helps me fall asleep, and it helps me wake up in the morning. Um, I don't like to listen first thing in the morning, but then when that first loneliness comes, um, just being able to listen to, um, I mean, I love audiobooks as well, but I like um, radio pieces better, and like The Moth and um, Death, Sex, and Money. We were 30 minutes into our conversation, and when Sophia told me about listening to podcasts, she had almost been crying. And I wasn't sure why. So I gently tried to circle back around. I, don't, I noticed it was like emotional to talk about. So I wanted to talk about why I was emotional. Because I lived here with my husband and I was married for 10 years. And then he asked me for a divorce three days before my baptism. Yeah. So I miss him a lot. And um, in some ways I feel like Maybe I got married to just have somebody with me all the time. Tantum ergo sacramentum. Hey, have a good one. Venere It's 7 a.m. Sophia has agreed to let me put a wireless microphone on her while she does her crossing guard duties. I'm crouched, wearing headphones 30 feet away. She's 5 foot 1, 48 years old, standing on a street corner in Brooklyn. Memo book in her pocket, excellent posture. For her, one of the joys of being a crossing guard is dressing for the weather. Today, blue cargo pants detachable hood and whistle, a long yellow raincoat. She sings in Latin to pass the early hours. And then, the morning rush. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Can you wait, please? Wait for the light. Honkity honk honk, honk honk. Someone who's been to Chartres. What? I call her the purveyor of joy. She doesn't know that. Oh, his friend is new. Oh, I like this little girl. Where's your brother? To wait for the light. There's a lot of Japanese parents. Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Sophia loves languages. So for all her regulars that pass by, she's learned to greet them in their family's language of origin. Thank you. <laughs> Um, uh, my mother is Japanese. My father is Chino. 
Guten Morgen. Morning. Watch out. Don't do what your parents do. I saw you. Have a very nice day. You're so polite. Good morning, dance teacher. Oh, Harry Potter. Someone's going to Hogwarts. You got a splinter in your toe and then... Good morning, you made it. Yes. There must be a parents meeting today. Hipster mama. Wow. I'm a narc. <laughs> I'm a snitch. Sophia is a great crossing guard. People literally stop and tell her this. Hello. You are a really great crossing guard. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're a great mom. But honestly, on Sophia's corner, I rarely saw little kids walking alone to school. To me, her job seemed like a whimsical relic, like a seltzer man or a switchboard operator. I started to brush up on my crossing guard history. In the U.S., crossing guards began in the 1920s. They exist all over the world, New Zealand, Germany, and the U.K., where they're called lollipop men and ladies. In New York City, crossing guards make $13.50 an hour and are almost all women. It's not a living wage. Many of them live in public housing and are supported by a family member. I found a competition called America's Favorite Crossing Guards, and I checked out the winners. Last year, Chief Lynn Wolford in Montana won. He wears a different hat to the corner every day. And the year before, Miss Sarah in Maryland was recognized for her 50 years of service. Sophia has this town greeter mentality. They're my constituents. They're the people that I serve. I, I think of them as my constituents or as guests at a party that I'm hosting. I'm a little bit strict about my corner, that I feel that it belongs to me while I'm working there, and so that I should make it the way I want it to be. And her constituents are gradually warming up to her. When I first started saying good morning, people kind of looked like a telephone booth had spoken to them. Like Some of them were literally looking for the source of the voice. Like They were just like, oh, oh. As I was getting to know Sophia, I was continuing down my path of existential inquiry, mainly reading Sartre's nausea in cafes. In the book, Antoine is working on a book about a man named Royabon, and this relationship between author and subject becomes a codependent one. He needed me in order to exist, and I needed him so as not to feel my existence. I felt this with Sophia, focusing on her life provided a welcome distraction from my own. I exist, that's all. And that trouble is so vague, so metaphysical, that I am ashamed of it. There's a bed in your kitchen. Yes. <laughs> yes, there is. There is a bed in the kitchen. Okay. There. Back in Sophia's apartment. Uh, but now I'm thinking I was going to ask you to help me actually lift this uh, support part of the bed. Today, I was helping her build a new bed, so she had a clean start after the divorce. I had started dropping by on weekends to interview her for a few hours. We'd sit on her couch and talk. She set her timer for 45 minutes so that we'd remember to stop and take snack breaks. Here, people. There we go. So it's time for a break. Sophia's story took a long time to unfold, mostly because she loves tangents, and I do too. So the picture of her life began with these pieces. I learned that she's Canadian. Her mother immigrated from Japan, her father from China. She told me that her younger brother has Down syndrome, that he would write long operas in his room, and that she grew up to the sound of opera coming through his bedroom walls. He's her spiritual guru. She says that even the way he eats a sandwich is devotional. Longing for the peanut butter sandwich, in union with the peanut butter sandwich. She said that her mother was a violin teacher, and she was a violin prodigy. She told me about her grandfather in Japan, who painted his eyebrows with black ink. She said that on Tuesday nights, she's in an adult intro to basketball class. And this week, they're learning to dribble. She keeps files on everyone in her apartment building. 
so she can remember their names. Like people think I'm amazing because I remember everyone's name. And the name she told me gossip. Kids. He is wearing a toupee, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. She read me her prayer journals. Please ask our Lord to bring his peace to the negotiations for divorce. Months went by, and I kept coming over. We talked about her hopes and dreams. A lot of little streams, little rivulets of cash. She asked me questions. Are your parents hippies? I recorded her laugh to her own puns. <laughs> the blow of her nose after she cried. I fact-checked as much as I could, and it was all true. She answered all of my questions with honesty. All winter long, I kept visiting the corner. I sat on a bench in my big red coat. Sophia said I looked like a big glowing flower. The repetition on the corner was starting to feel like a meditation. I really loved being there. After a while, I knew all the regulars, and the morning unfolded like a choreographed dance. It began with the fully loaded food carts waking up in their lot across the street, and their drivers guiding them over the crosswalk with no control. This thing is like a big boulder coming down a mountain. Enter the old Italian man who shouts, I love you, I love you. You take care of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Buen provecho. And then, oh, this is Meals on Wheels. Turkey it's, bean chili, oh, it's rice. lunch. It's, it's lunch, but we're early, so. That's right, yeah, turkey bean chili and rice. I could eat that. Then the police car. Well, I wave to police cars, but they usually don't wave back to me. But that's okay. We're at the bottom of the totem pole. Then the three dogs that she's named after the three tenors. And you look like Carreras. The kids who don't like to be crossed. That's rebel number two. Yes, victory. The mom who is always late. Lord, have mercy on her heart. Perhaps she works the night shift. She has rituals with many of the kids. And when she misses one... They're looking back and hoping that I'll catch their eye. It's, it's um, heartbreaking, actually. There's drama. The guys were supposed to come and pave the road, and somebody had stolen their machine. How could you? Right? I mean, you, do you just hotwire that thing and drive away? Like, how do people And of course, there are trucks. Oh my goodness. I love trucks. It's kind of like being in a world of giants. They have their own atmosphere traveling with them, basically. There's, some of them are so hot. It's like a weather system. And, oh, well, if I see a woman driving a truck, oh, forget about it, right? I mean, that's the best. And then what is not to love about a car on top of a truck? On the corner, I would lean against the big blue mailbox in the sun with my headphones, while Sophia talked to me through her microphone from the crosswalk. I saw some people staring at her, wondering if she was talking to herself. I was standing here this morning and I realized, um, well, two things. Hi. The first thing is Nietzsche. Nietzsche, uh, do you know the thing about the eternal return? Okay, so he says a great way to think about your life is that you, for everything, every decision you're making, everything you do, you say to yourself, what if I had to live this life, exactly the life that I've had, eternally, just over and over. It's like reincarnation, but the same life. So then act- Nietzsche reminded her of Camus, and Camus reminded her of the myth of Sisyphus, pushing a boulder up the hill. I'm starting to identify more with manual workers who work with their bodies. And you know what? If you push a boulder up a hill all day, you're going to have a good sleep. You're not going to have problems with insomnia. <laughs> um, morning. And I think as a professor, I was looking for some external meaning. That's right. Before becoming a crossing guard, Sophia was an atheist philosophy professor. Working on my dissertation six days a week. Good morning. Columbia University, PhD, tenured philosophy professor at a university in Brooklyn. I knew many people who had ascended the ladder of ambition but rarely met people who had voluntarily climbed down it. 
I slowly unraveled the story of how Sophia went from married to divorced, philosophy professor to crossing guard, and atheist to Catholic. Since she was a kid, she never knew what she wanted to be when she grew up. No job felt right. No vocation called to her. All I could get was a big black cloud of nothing. She did the philosophy PhD to please her parents. But when she got the job, she developed depression and chronic fatigue. Just skip until I quit my job as a professor. Her husband had the income to support them both and health insurance. Her days were suddenly free. And she started thinking about what she really wanted to do in the world. Then one day, in the middle of the week, she noticed her neighbor in the lobby, looking very dressed up. Beautifully resplendent in this silk sari with brocade embroidery. And it was a Tuesday at 11.45 a.m. The neighbor said she was going to a mass across the street and invited Sophia. And she just had this look of happiness. Like, she's like... I'm going for my mass, you know? I love my mass. And I was like, you, it belongs to you? What? You know, like... And Sophia's like, okay, daily mass will help me get out of bed when I'm unemployed. It's just a social practice, just like anything else, like a book club, you know, <laughs> or like a workout. When she got there, it reminded her of a philosophy class. The Monday to Friday crowd is like the graduate seminar. And the Sunday mass is like the undergraduate intro class. That's basically what it is. Then she became obsessed with the priest holding the Eucharist. The way he was looking at this little wafer, like it was his baby. And she was like, you don't actually think Jesus is in the wafer, do you? He said, not only do I and all Catholics in the world believe that, but it happens to be true. It was like watching the X-Files, like, the truth is out there. And then she's like, well, what if I allowed myself the possibility to think it might be true? If he's outside of time and space, he can do anything. It would be easy for him to go into a piece of wafer. He can go into wine. He can go into wafer. He can do anything he wants to. He's God. And my mind just kind of cracked open the door to, if this is true, then look how interesting the world becomes. Then she started getting Eucharist envy. She wanted to taste the wafer. And when she finally did... I've only been high on marijuana a couple of times. That's the closest thing I can think of. And it was kind of like... You know, like the world has all these sharp edges and pokey things, and nothing really hurts as much as usual. She and her husband were supposed to have their 10th anniversary in Paris. Instead, he divorced her. I don't have his permission to go into the details of why they split up. But after 10 years together, Sophia wanted a deeper relationship, and she suggested they separate. Her idea was that some time apart would spark romance. I had this whole elaborate fantasy in my mind that this was the thing that would restart, you know, reboot everything. But now I realize that I hadn't really discussed this with him. Um, And it was a big shock to him. And so after a few weeks of living without me, he decided that he preferred it that way. And then he told me that he had actually been fantasizing about getting out of the marriage. And shortly after that is when I stepped in and started recording Sophia. Yeah. I cried a lot yesterday. Um, That's one of the reasons I started going to church, is that um, churches are really good places to cry, and nobody asks you what the problem is. And, you know, as long as you're on your knees and have your hands like this, they assume that you're just praying and you're, you know, crying is normal. Men cry. You know, everybody can be crying in the pew, and people are like, oh, yes, she's praying. She is crying. That is socially acceptable. In fact, it's approved. You know, it's like, oh, she's very devout. She's crying because she loves God so much, you know. And so I can stay in there and cry as long as I need to. And there aren't a lot of places like that. After the divorce, Sophia had 60 days before she would be off her husband's health insurance. 
She started looking for a job that included benefits that would still give her enough time to figure out what she really wanted to do. At church, she met a school crossing guard. It's 25 hours a week, the woman told her, and it comes with health insurance. So Sophia went to the police academy to check out the training. And there, she found a number of life's little pleasures. You know, it was just, yeah, it was unexpectedly beautiful. I really started enjoying the sight of people in rows. Sophia's appreciation of these moments was so apparent, so contagious, that when she started opening up to me about her depression, I was startled. She told me that suicide is a regular thought for her, that her younger brother is the main reason she stops herself. At first I thought, how could someone who finds so much joy in a uniform supply store feel that way? But I realized it was a desperate type of joy. She needed the joy she experienced on the corner for survival. Because I have considered suicide many times and think about it a lot, I realized that I need to, you know, squeeze the joy out of everything I can. Like, I need reasons to live every day. And if a white glove makes me really happy, then I'm going to take that. And if a bite of brownie, you know, makes me really happy, then I'll take that. This attunement to life's little pleasures was my favorite thing about being on the corner with Sophia. And it comes up often in nausea. For Antoine, mundane pleasures are the antidote to the shame of existence. My life put out feelers towards small pleasures in every direction. He walks the city and bathes in rectangles of yellow light. He watches a man innocently eat a slice of bread He revisits the same park, but it starts to look different. It didn't have its usual look. It smiled at me. I felt violently that I was having an adventure. For Sophia, the Catholic Church was masterful at creating these moments, like communion, for instance. We're not supposed to receive communion more than once a day. But some of us do. (laughs) You? (laughs) Is this a confession? Yes, I am unrepentant. Now Sophia has been a Catholic for two years and a crossing guard for one. But the pay is so low and there's so little recognition that she's had to keep convincing herself that she's on the right path. Maybe I've already had my time of leadership in the spotlight. And now the rest of my life is just living in the shadows, um, being mostly invisible, that would be such a relief if if I could just do that and people didn't expect more from me. So I think I expected more of myself. And through prayer, I have started to realize that it would be completely fine for me to stay where I am. Part of being a crossing guard is I now see that I have an opportunity to pray for every person who passes my corner. And now I feel like, well, it's part of my job to be the person who is looking out for everyone on the block. And then also when people are clearly suffering, to just silently, you know, not to make a big deal, not to do anything that would let anyone know that I was praying for them, but to just do it in my heart while I'm there, while they're in front of me. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, it still does something for me because it's getting me into the habit of having empathy for people and and wishing them well. Are you, is this an emotional topic? Um, a little bit, yeah. Um, well, to be honest, Uh, I feel sad that I did not grow up with a lot of people I knew praying for me. It's sad that there are some people who don't have anyone to pray for them. And whenever I think of that, that just makes me sad, you know, that there are many, many people that I see on the street who don't seem to have anyone who prays for them or anyone who really cares if anything happens to them. 
And I feel like everyone should at least have someone to say goodbye to them or to bury them, I guess. Do you fear that for yourself? Yes. Uh, I do not have children. My brother is 11 months younger than me, but people with Down syndrome tend to die earlier. My parents are older than me. Someday someone's going to get this apartment and I don't know who. I don't know who to leave it to. And so basically I have no heir or, you know, I don't know who's going to bury me, basically. Yeah. I'll bury you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what you're getting into when you say that? Yeah, but like, I mean, I'm sure it's a lot. Mm -hmm. You're a very um, generous person (laughs) because I don't know if you're planning you know, to marry and have kids and stuff. But like, by the time I die, who knows where you'll be, you know, like you could be in another country, you could be, you know, you will have more obligations. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't think I'll be in another country. But yeah, I keep in close touch with the people I interview. They stay in my life in intimate ways. I stumble over my words. I'm going to interview. I didn't know what else to do other than offer. Had I struck the deepest loneliness possible? The loneliness we're afraid we'll feel when we're dying. My time with Sophia had helped my loneliness, but it had not solved it. I had no priest, no shaman to go to with my problem. So I went to the contemporary equivalent, my doctor. When I told her about my loneliness, She prescribed antidepressants. I wanted to tell her that I wasn't depressed. I was lonely. I was lonely because I lived thousands of miles away from my parents, because I grew up thousands of miles from my grandparents, because my mom was an immigrant, and we were always reaching across different cultures. I wanted to tell her I was lonely because I was beholden to no one. Nothing was expected of me, and I had no responsibilities other than my own material well-being, which meant that I fought with my roommates about money. I wanted to tell her that I lived a life separate from the rhythms of nature, and I wasn't born into any belief system, that moving my car for street sweeping had become a cherished ritual in my life. But most of all, I wanted to tell her that my loneliness was beyond the physical and into the spiritual realm. I longed for ceremony, for stories and mythology to guide me? Had I unconsciously gone looking in churches to fill this void? But I didn't say that to the doctor. I took the prescription and I filled it, and the loneliness was dulled. It's been six months since I started following Sophia. I'm in an Antoine mood again. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Back to the long walks with my hands behind my back. Morning. Morning, sir. (gasps) Here's Edwin. On my last visit to the corner, I told Sophia to say the end of the story on her own. She had the microphone clipped to her, and I walked away to get a coffee. Ah, my assignment. Well, first thing that popped into my mind was the most dramatic ending, of course, is that one or both of us gets hit by a truck uh, (laughs) while crossing the street. Not you, not you, Bianca, but possibly me, uh, so that you could then finish the story. And it would be my legacy. You know, it's funny because I would love for the story to end with me still being a crossing guard. Yeah, just showing up and being present for people. Being present is the essence of my job. Good morning. After following Sophia for months, I did feel less lonely with her, and she felt less lonely with me. But it was time to go our separate ways. I moved out of New York, not sure where I'd go next. I'm between two cities. Who remembers me? I thought of Sophia often. Bye, Scooter Boy! (laughs) Standing on a New York City corner, talking to the Meals on Wheels people. 
Thank you so much for feeding our old people. Thank you, you're welcome. Without you, I'm sure they would die. I feel something brush against me lightly. I dare not move. I'm afraid it will go away. Something I didn't know anymore. A sort of joy? Sophia. If only I could capture her. Then I could feel less lonely. I could think about her life. As something precious. Almost legendary. Tomorrow is a school day. Tomorrow it will rain. Tomorrow it will rain in Brooklyn. Tomorrow the crossing guard will wear her yellow jacket. It flows in me. Gently. Gently. I exist. It's so sweet. So slow. That's Bianca Gaver in the episode Crossing Guard from her podcast called Constellation Prize. I'll talk with Bianca about making this after the break. Hey, I'm Afi Yellowduke, and I'm one of the producers here on the show. And one of the many things I do here is put together our weekly newsletter. Each Wednesday, we send out an email with behind-the-scenes updates from the show staff, letters from listeners, and story call-outs for the episodes we're working on. And of course, every week, there are new recommendations of audio we love, and think you will too. I'm just jumping in quickly to say, it's a really good newsletter. Afi does a great job, so you should definitely sign up. Thanks, Anna. Subscribe right now by going to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter or just text DSM News to 70101. And thanks, as always, for listening. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks. But they were healthy, whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus Show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. 
I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Decoder Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale, and I'm now here with Bianca Gaver, the producer of Constellation Prize from The Believer magazine. We heard the first episode from that show, Crossing Guard, before the break. Hi, Bianca. Hello. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your show. It's such a special thing to get to listen to. Mm, Thank you. Thank you so much. When you think about how to describe this particular piece, Crossing Guard, to people, do you describe it as a profile? Do you describe it as an essay? Like, what are the words you found yourself using? Yeah, um, I do describe it as a bit of both. I mean, I've always been really interested in character over plot. Um, primarily. And so the conceit of this story was that I would get to just really go in on character. Um, And it would be like a complete um, dissection of one character who I chose at random. And so, yeah, that's pretty much, I don't know, I actually don't need to describe it to anyone. Usually, this is my first time. I'm just like, listen to this, please. <laughs> and I've been in a pandemic, so it's just, you know, all over Twitter. So it's it's an honor to even be able to describe it at all. Um, but I do, like when I'm describing the podcast people, I guess I do, um, I do use the word performance art sometimes because um, it is a highly conceptual episode in the sense that like I went into it with a concept, almost the way uh, a piece of performance art would begin with a concept. Mm. And you also talk about finding Sophia, meeting Sophia, because you were lonely and looking for other Mm -hmm. lonely people. Um, Mm -hmm. Are you feeling lonely right now? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think I always feel lonely. I mean, loneliness and anxiety are two constant themes in my work, and it's a bit of an obsession. Um, And even when I'm around other people, I feel lonely, not in a, like, pity me way, but in a sort of spiritual way. And I think um, part of that comes up with, like, comes from having grown up in this time, you know, like with atheist parents and, and like not a ton of, not a strong sense of community or belonging or, you know, no religion to belong to. Um, And so I think there is a kind of searching to fill the void, which is loneliness is one word for it. Um, Mm. It's hard to fully describe. And and my work is constantly trying to describe it. But apparently Sartre felt it too hundreds of years ago, or not hundreds of years ago, decades ago. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, I'm interested that you said it growing up right now. And then also it's it's both feels like a specific phenomenon right now, that feeling Mm -hmm. that you're describing, and also Mm -hmm. like a timeless feature of being human. Um, Totally. Yeah. And I mean, like, obviously, being single in a pandemic right now is not 
helping my loneliness <laughs> a ton. Um, and, and obviously this was, this piece was produced before the pandemic and we released it in the pandemic. And I was like, is this going to work? Is this going to feel weird? Um, but it ended up really resonating with people because if you are single right now, or, you know, even if you have family and you're stuck with just one or two people, it is a very isolating time. Um, here in Vermont, like someone just posted on Front Porch Forum with the subject alone. And they were like, I need to know, like, is anyone else alone right now? Like, it's hard to even remember <laughs> that huh. other people are alone. She's like, it seems like everywhere I go, I see, I see couples. Um, and so I, I responded and I was like, I'm also alone. Thank you for posting, you know, because it's so there's such a stigma to loneliness and it's hard to even tell other people that you're lonely. It's, it's, it's very awkward. Like even saying it out loud, just to you, I felt like, like it felt like a transgression or something. Hmm. That's a really, I, I like that that conversation happened on a place called front porch forum. Also, there's something really sweet, like yeah. thinking about you two shouting across each to each other from your front porch. Oh my gosh. Where you're by I need to, I need to do a piece about front porch forum. It is insane. The post, like this one person has been trying to give away a rooster for like six months. <laughs> And like, no one wants it. And they're like, still have the rooster. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> um, well, I also want to talk to you about your creative inspiration, because yeah. all this week as part of our Audio We Love Festival, we're asking the creators of the shows that we're featuring about the things that inspired them while they were making them. Um, so you already mentioned Jean-Paul Sartre, who, who you talk about mm -hmm. in the piece. Yeah. What's something else that you were sort of either going back to or thinking about as you were making this, something that, that provided you inspiration? Yeah, so I mentioned performance art. And um, one of the pieces that I almost mentioned and put in the story as well, but ended up cutting last minute, um, is a piece by the performance artist Sophie Cal um, that she did in 1980. I don't know how to pronounce even the title of this piece because it's in French. Well, spell um, it for us. How does it, what, okay, it spell? Okay, S-U-I-T-E space V-E with an accent over it, N-I-T-I-E-N-N-E. -N -N -E. Hang on, I'm putting it into a translator right now. French translate. Venetian suite. That's how, that's how it, it translated. And Sophie Cal, how does Sophie Cal spell it? What's it? C-A-L? C-A-L-L-E. C-A-L-L-E. I think it's pronounced okay. Cal. Um, anyway, so she met a stranger at a party in Paris, I believe, and uh, she decided to follow that stranger all the way to Venice. Um, and and uh, he got on a plane. You know, she followed him to the airport um, just out of sight. Uh, she, uh, she got a ticket and she went to Venice and she was photographing him from a distance and it's all these sort of you know photos of the back of his head um and so and you know her whole practice is very uh voyeuristic it's about trying to get to know people based on uh the ephemera of their lives um she has another piece from the following year called the hotel where she works as a cleaning person in a hotel and goes through strangers things and tries to know everything find out everything she can about them um and so these are these are like highly conceptual character-based pieces about I mean, to me, the longing to to know strangers' stories um, based on the little pieces that uh, you see of them out in the world. And so I wanted, I mean, I've always been interested in audio as a format for performance art, as the deliverable for performance art. Um, and so I was interested in doing something similar where I also chose a stranger and followed them. Um, and Vito Acconci uh, is a famous performance artist. He also had a piece in 1969 that was literally called Following Peace. Um, and he has a quote about it where he says, I am almost not an I anymore because I put myself in the service of this scheme. Hmm. And that was what I ended up achieving at certain moments of this piece where like, I wanted to forget myself because I was so immersed in another person's life. Like I wanted that feeling because um, being an I is so lonely. And so by like committing 
to Sophia, the obsession with Sophia for six months, um, I did lose myself in it. And I did need an obsession at that time. And I do think of obsession as a cure for depression. Hmm. Is there anything else that you think of when you think about what gave you fuel when you were working through this piece? Totally. I mean, it's such a private, it it almost is a lonely experience until the piece is released because you're so alone in this obsession with this person. Um, But the the book Nausea came to me um, (laughs) through an artist friend (laughs) named Nervon Mullick. Like, it's a bit of a cliche, like, it's a little embarrassing to be, like, reading Sartre because it's so, like, I don't know, like, college kid discovers existentialism. But, like, it's time. It's, we need that, you know? (laughs) You need need that, yeah. It's it's very earnest, you know? Um, But my friend Nervon Mullick, his entire career has been based around an obsession of perfect moments, and, tr- and he's been working on a one-second film for 25 years. Hmm. And um, and he actually is the one who told me about nausea because it mentions perfect moments. And in nausea, there's a, there's a, a, a thread of, um, of him trying to find perfect moments in the city. And, par- and like that definitely is very present in the piece. Actually, Nirvan and I and another friend, we text each other a perfect moment from every day as a practice. Oh. And um, so that was definitely inspiring me because I feel like Sophia, some people orient themselves, their lives in a way to create and find perfect moments. And, and the way Nirvan lives his life, he definitely does that. And I try to as well, because we have this practice. And, and Sophia does that too. I mean, she, on the corner, she's looking for perfect moments and she's trying to create perfect moments. And I tried to capture those in the piece and a perfect moment could be, you know, someone, it could be as simple as someone smiling back to her who, who hadn't smiled the five days previously, you know, or a a moment of standing in the sun when the sun hits you perfectly. Um, And there were a lot of those in nausea and, and, and so like, and, you know, Sophia and I had some perfect moments in our conversation. And so in a way, the piece felt like stringing together the perfect moments to create the ultimate perfect moment. What was your perfect moment yesterday that you texted? <laughs> I, can, I can like literally, I can literally pull it up. Um, I had so many, <laughs> I had a few. Realizing that I don't like bananas, finally, like just admitting that to myself <laughs> was like one of yesterday's perfect moments. Um, like this guy I have a small crush on, like texted me saying I did it, like he liked a radio piece I made. But a moment can be perfectly terrible as well. Oh, and, uh-huh. and yeah, like sometimes when things go so perfectly wrong, like all at once, it's like, wow, this is perfectly horrible, but it's <laughs> it's still perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have one more question for you, and that is, um, yeah. Are you and Sophia still in touch? We are still in touch, of course. Um, I stay in deep touch, if that's a phrase, with with people when I do like really long um, pieces about them like this. She sends me photos of herself like all decked out, like her latest outfits, like, you know, in all her PPE for the pandemic, Mm. updates on, you know, when she moves corners. I always hear about it. Um, you know, and just like, you know, being a crossing guard in a pandemic is a whole new chapter. And so she tells me about how she's still crossing kids to come get their lunches from school, but it's not quite the same, Mm. um, that sort of thing. So yeah, we definitely, you know, like, you know, I think she still feels lonely, you know, especially in the pandemic, it's really hard and she can't hang out with you know, normally she sees kids and babysits and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, we keep in touch, but it's not like, it's not nearly to the degree that it used to be. Um, it's just like a check-in every couple of weeks. Bianca, thank you for making this and for sharing it with us. Oh, thanks for playing it. And uh, thanks for talking to me about it. I really appreciate it. You can find Constellation Prize from The Believer magazine wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Crossing Guard was written and produced by Bianca Gaver. It was edited by Hayden Bennett, music by Zubin Hensler and Stellwagen Symphonette, mixing by Zubin Hensler. Special thanks to Lily Allen, Jacob Bloomberg, Andrew Leland, Laura Irving, Kaveh Zahedi, Jay Allison, and to Sophia. If you'd like to subscribe to The Believer magazine, we have a discount code for you, too. You can enter at DSM for 20% off. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. Annabelle Bacon is producing our Audio We Love Festival. The rest of our team includes Katie Bishop, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Michelle Shu for her work on the festival. The Reverend John Delure and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter to get audio we love recommendations every single week. Just text DSM News to 70101. There's even more audio we love coming your way tomorrow. You've never told me this before. So you also wanted to be a cheerleader? Yes, because they look so cute with the little skirts, and they, they were so popular. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.